0: Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States. Episode 3.10, Pirates. Since I began this show, there have been several instances where we have brought up the topic of piracy. They first came up back during the third episode of the show, when we discussed the Anglo-Spanish War. Following that, they have come up several times in relation to the colonies. Edmund Andros, if you'll recall, was always staunchly opposed to the North American colonies becoming a free haven for pirates. He chased them out of Massachusetts and then discovered that he needed to do the same thing once he reached Virginia. Though not something that I believe I explicitly mentioned, one of the concerns that was being conveyed to William Penn by the Board of Trade is the continued cooperation with pirates entering into Pennsylvania. These reports are something that William Penn was more than ready to put to rest. For today, I would like to take our time looking at piracy in the colonies. Why did it exist? Who supported it? Who benefited? And who lost from it? Before we can really jump in and look at pirates, we need to ask a central question. Specifically, what exactly is a pirate? Now, to some degree, I feel weird even asking this question, as I'm pretty confident that mostly everybody above the age of, let's say, five years old, could describe a pirate. Almost immediately, we see Jack Sparrow from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies popping into our mind. And what more do you really need to know? The truth, however, is that the question is far more convoluted than simply defining a pirate as a guy with a peg leg who swashbuckles and seeks out plunder, while a wise cracking parrot makes snide comments from his shoulder. We have alluded to this before, way back in that episode on the English-Spanish War. When we talked about Francis Drake, we discussed the fact that he was a privateer. Privateers were that group of sailors who would operate under a letter of mark from the crown, which allowed them a wide range of freedoms to act essentially as agents of the crown. These were common during times of war as the privateers could help fill in the gaps of a less powerful navy. The privateers were often reimbursed for their services by being allowed to keep a percentage of the items that were seized. So, for example, Let's say that England and Spain are fighting a war against each other. The English crown issues a letter of mark and awards it to a sailor, making him into a privateer. Our privateer now travels across the Atlantic Ocean to the Caribbean, where he proceeds to interfere with Spanish shipping by attacking the ships taking goods from the Americas back to Spain. For the English, they receive the benefit that the country that they are at war with is being denied materials from the Americas, which generally meant precious metals. This would become an economic strain on Spain, making them think twice about continuing in the war. For the privateer, they derived their benefit out of this entire thing from now being allowed to keep either a percentage of or occasionally all of the goods that they had just seized from the ship that they attacked. The question that comes up in this situation is whether or not that privateer is a pirate. As you can probably see from the example above. To say that the lines were blurry is an understatement. What's more, the lines were often flexible and moving. One day, you are a privateer just doing your privateer thing, and then the next day, alliances and diplomatic relationships change, and hey, now you're a pirate. Later today, we are going to talk about some of the better-known pirates. However, we will see that oftentimes, these men were both privateers and pirates at the very same time. In the case, for example, of Captain William Kidd, better known simply as Captain Kidd, he was operating under a valid letter of marque and was indeed a privateer. The problem in his case is that he just kept making mistakes and attacking ships of all nationalities. So, while Captain Kidd did have permission to attack French ships, as the time period we are talking about right now is the middle of the 1690s when France and England were indeed at war, Kidd kept making mistakes and just kept attacking Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, and Moorish ships. And to be clear, despite what Captain Kidd himself might tell you, these mistakes were absolutely intentional. He knew just what he was doing. In that specific instance, you have somebody who is operating legally. However, they are exceeding the bounds of that letter of mark. Oftentimes, therefore, pirates do not begin as pirates. Normally, they would begin working legitimate jobs, either as merchants or in the Royal Navy. However, harsh conditions were often enough to push people in the direction of more questionably legal business practices. The idea of a quick payday by engaging in some form of piracy really was not the least attractive idea. Things were even better when one could get a letter of mark. These came with lucrative agreements where the privateer could keep a portion of what they collected or potentially would be gifted a ship by the crown in exchange for their work. While many would take advantage of the situation while operating under the letter of Mark, others would discover that after such letter expired, they had expenses and were interested in making some more money. Even if they had loyally acted under the letter of Mark and not descended into piracy at that point, the conflict that they had gotten the letter with would always eventually come to an end. The guy with a boat and a crew would still need to find a way to make money. Since they already had experience plundering other ships, it was a pretty natural progression into piracy. We know that England used privateers extensively. Going back to that episode on the Anglo-Spanish War, remember that in the Battle of the Spanish Armada, the English Navy did feature a large number of English privateers. However, I do want to be clear that this was not exclusively an English club. Other countries absolutely were using privateers to varying degrees. It is also important to note that while privateers were celebrated heroes, everybody hated pirates. This is why, despite a sketchy past, Francis Drake would become Sir Francis Drake. What then is the advantage to the individual nation? If everybody hated pirates, Why create a class of people that was so likely to descend into piracy in the future? The answer to that question lies within the realm of pragmatism. The Battle of the Spanish Armada provides us with a good example. And, by the way, I never would have guessed that I would be talking about the Anglo-Spanish War episode so much 70 episodes after the fact. Today, we are used to thinking of the British as being a naval powerhouse. And from the 18th century up into the 20th century, that is absolutely true. They were just that. However, back during the 16th century, they were not yet a naval power. The English navy would not have been able to defeat the Spanish armada one-on-one. Therefore, privateers made a lot of sense as they were a method whereby a country could supplement their existing navy. During the rapid expansion of English colonization during the 17th century, the navy was strengthened by a good margin. However, with England increasingly becoming a colonial power, their navy was being stretched thin. Enter the privateer, who can do things like interrupt an enemy's shipping lanes, and hence interfere with their economy. Over time, this would decrease the enemy's ability to fund the war. In the short term, by attacking the enemy's ships using privateers, it was possible to reduce the enemy's projection of power in the colonies. By using privateers to conduct skirmishes on the other side of the Atlantic, it freed up far more valuable English warships to protect the islands or lead major offensive operations without leaving a portion of the empire totally open and unprotected. With so many valuable shipping lanes flowing through the Caribbean, it makes sense that this would become such a hot spot for piracy. Spanish ships carrying precious metals and other valuable spices would sail through the Caribbean on their way back to Europe. Likewise, Dutch ships carrying slaves into the colonies made ripe targets for pirates, who could then steal the slaves and resell them directly, thus cutting out the Dutch from the process. This podcast, however, is focused on the United States. So the question obviously becomes, just how did those same pirates make it up to the North American English colonies? We have already seen some evidence of piracy in this podcast, in our discussion of Edmund Andros we talked about how one of the reforms that he brought was to cut off New England from piracy. New England had become something of a hotbed for pirates. They would sail up and dock in Boston Harbor, and while having their ships worked on and resupplied, they would sell the goods that they had captured to a population that was eager to buy them. Additionally, they brought with them much-needed money that they then spent to make those repairs and buy supplies before heading back down to the Caribbean to do some more pirating. This system worked pretty good for everybody at the time. The pirates had a relatively safe harbor to dock in, as well as a place to sell those goods that they had acquired. For the colonists, it meant that there was both an influx of luxury goods, but also it meant additional revenue coming into the colony as they supplied the pirates. Much to the chagrin of everybody, Edmund Andros was a law-and-order kind of guy, and English law forbade piracy. Well, privateering was still legal. England had signed two different pacts, stating that their objective was to end piracy in the Americas. The first such agreement came in the Treaty of Madrid in 1670 between England and Spain. In the Treaty of Whitehall from 1686, a similar agreement was reached with France. Well, privateering did help supplement the navy. Piracy itself hurt trade. In Massachusetts, they had reasons for liking it. However, from the perspective of the English, piracy meant that they were, at best, being cheated out of customs duties. Trade as a result of piracy was illegal trade. More than just custom duties, however, England recognized that as they grew more and more powerful, they increasingly became targets of pirates themselves. We see this become most prevalent in and around the Chesapeake, in the later part of the 1600s and then moving into the 1700s. The Chesapeake would become such a hot target as the pirates would focus their efforts on those ships carrying tobacco. We know from Francis Nicholson that as Edmund Andros was trying to purge out piracy, he would go ahead and not just punish the seller, but also punish the buyer. In Andros's mind, this would cut off both the supply and the demand for pirated goods. However, likely much due to the considerable anger and annoyance of Edmund Andros, grand juries were reluctant to indict colonists who purchased goods from pirates. Pirates were a problem not just in New England, but throughout the colonies as a whole. Between the colonies becoming a place of support for the practice of piracy, and increasingly a victim of piracy, the practice really had spread up and down the North American coast. Aside from the obvious risks associated with having a large number of pirates in your harbors, the issue often became intertwined with colonial politics. Recall from a few episodes ago, we were discussing the issues that Pennsylvania, and by extension, William Penn, had with the newly formed Board of Trade. In his less than flattering report, Edward Randolph pointed to the high number of pirates in the colony, going so far to claim that Governor Markham favored the outlaws. Just to add to the headache that William Penn had, the part of Pennsylvania that was being pointed at as really being a problem for pirates were the already troublesome lower counties. Now, this makes sense and may not indicate that the lower counties were filled to the brim with fans of pirates. Rather, it was the lower counties that had access to the Atlantic. Randolph used this, however, as proof that Penn and the government of Pennsylvania had little control over their lower counties. He then made the suggestion that Pennsylvania should, due to their lack of authority in those lower counties, surrender them to the power of Maryland and Governor Nicholson. Nicholson, for his part in all of this, was a considerable fan of the plan. William Penn had spent years defending his claim over the lower counties. The entire reason that he was stuck in England was because he had to go back to London to defend that claim against Maryland proprietor lord baltimore to have spent all that time and energy fighting off attacks from baltimore penn was not thrilled to see maryland making yet another play on those critical counties pennsylvania officials came out very quickly in their own defense and pointed out that at that very minute they were holding several pirates in their jail however as things go right as they were sending their rebuttal that they were holding several pirates in their jail Those same pirates were busy escaping from said jail, so ultimately that was not a great look. Because of the report by Randolph, upon his return to the colony, Penn sought out to aggressively enforce both the Navigation Acts and the prosecution of accused pirates. Penn was successful in his prosecution of pirates. He would tout this to the Board of Trade in 1700 as evidence that the colony could self police itself against piracy. He did a good enough job that the Board of Trade even acknowledged that he had made good progress with his reforms to the then-existing system. This came at a critical time as the Board of Trade was getting geared up to attack colonial proprietors. Penn was able to use his prosecution of pirates as proof of his fidelity to the crown and proved that he was still loyal to the monarch. Now, of course, we know that, praise aside, The Board of Trade was indeed interested in purging out the remaining proprietary colonies and converting them into royal colonies. Though in Penn's case, that would never actually be accomplished. In Virginia and the rest of the Chesapeake, you see piracy really boom in the region following 1690. As we have talked about many times before, tobacco had become the dominant cash crop in the region and made up nearly three quarters of the exports from the Chesapeake. This made the entire region especially vulnerable to an economic collapse should something disrupt that trade. As we know from episode 3.6, that trade was disrupted time and time again beginning in the 1690s. With wars against France and later the Spanish during the War of Spanish Succession, exports from the Chesapeake were often disrupted, which brought with it devastating effects on the local economies. As for using pirates to take tobacco out of the colony… That is somewhat questionable. Exporting tobacco through known or suspected pirates was always going to be an exceptionally dangerous game. What pirates did do is bring goods and luxury items from Europe into the colony that would have otherwise been disrupted. Repairs to their ships and restocking also meant that infusion of money into a colony that was increasingly strapped for cash as the war went on. In this way, during years of war, Piracy became an important means by which the colonial economies were able to continue functioning. It was in 1710 that the British really do begin making the decision to crack down and try to root out pirates. Now, super briefly, just one thing to clear up. In 1707, there is going to be the Act of Union, which joined England and Scotland under a single monarch. The joint union makes up Great Britain. So if you are curious why I'm suddenly referring to the English as the British, know that 1707 is the delineating line. So how and why did the British begin making an attempt to end piracy? Part of the explanation is simple, that now that England itself had grown to become an economic empire, they themselves had become more susceptible to the ills that came along with piracy. At best, it challenged their own colonial policy that we see in relation to the custom duties in the Navigation Acts. This was something that England was trying hard to crack down on as we spent a great deal of time discussing last season and during the first part of this season. At worst, it exposed England itself to the same economic losses through pirated goods that the Spanish had been dealing with for over a century. Simply put, England now had much more to lose than they did a century before. There are other reasons as well. We cannot discount the fact that the English Navy had undergone a massive modernization during the latter part of the 17th century. England was now suddenly a naval power, with the ability to do something about pirates. It's great to want to stop piracy, but if you are lacking the naval resources to do it, this is going to be a very difficult task. Part of what would help lead to the decline of piracy relates to the changes in the court system that we discussed back in episode 3.8. In that episode, we had discussed how, with the rise of the Board of Trade, came the Navigation Acts of 1696. This was the act that stripped jurisdictions from the colonies when it came to violations of colonial trade and moved them into vice admiralty courts. An advantage of this came in the scope of prosecuting against piracy. Piracy, for all of the other things that it was, is a violation of the acts of trade. Therefore, trials of accused pirates moved from the jurisdiction of the individual colony and into admiralty Court. This means that the accused could far more easily be denied basic rights, such as trial by jury. It was now the judges often hand-picked by the king, that would consider the issue. In colonies where there was sympathy towards accused pirates, this took it out of the hands of local juries to decide their fate. The end result was far more predictable outcome during trials. Beyond that, under the reign of William III, the definition of piracy was clarified and expanded. Now, accepting goods from pirates was itself considered piracy. Well, we have already talked today that in some places this was already happening, that the buyers were being punished from purchasing goods from pirates. This was now officially the law. With colonists suddenly looking at potential execution from dealing with pirates, the stakes of doing business with them was far higher than it had previously been. William III also expanded rewards, not only for the capture of pirates, but for those who resisted mutinies. For those on a merchant’ ship, this gives a financial incentive to resist joining the crowd and overthrowing the lawful captain. All of this, in conjunction with those previously discussed changes to the court system, helped aid in the capture and prosecution of alleged pirates, while at the same time disincentivizing colonists from having anything to do with the trade. The end result being that by the time that the 1730s roll around, piracy was decreasing and the golden age of piracy was at an end. What we really see emerge, therefore, in the colonies is something of a love-hate relationship between the colonists and pirates. Government officials remained firmly on the hate side of that equation, whereas for the common colonists, piracy could prove to be an outlet to stimulate the economy. Ports throughout the eastern seaboard were relatively safe havens for a good deal of time, Pirates could service their ships and resupply while the colonists get their hands on luxury goods and much-needed specie. Of course, this came with a dangerous flip side. If you play around in shark-infested waters long enough, eventually you are going to get bit. Sure enough, by the early 18th century, the colonists are not just benefiting from the institution of piracy, but they are also being victimized by it. It is all fun and games while you are enjoying the imports. It is a whole lot less fun when the pirates are targeting your goods. No pirate would strike more fear into the hearts of the colonists during the early decades of the 1700s than did Edward Teach, better known to history as Blackbeard. There is little information where Blackbeard came from. However, he first appears as a crew member for Captain Benjamin Hornigold. Together, the men would spend years working together in the West Indies. During these early years, Blackbeard and Hornigold would travel to Virginia in order to service their ships and resupply. The relationship between Blackbeard and Hornigold ended with Hornigold's surrender. Blackbeard now set out on his own. Now, you may be asking yourself, why on earth would a pirate surrender? This was actually a pretty common practice during the early 18th century. With the crackdown on piracy, there was an ever-increasing occupational hazard for pirates, that they would end up with their heads on pikes. Unsurprisingly, few were all that interested in that fate. With execution now being the name of the game, the play was for a pirate to surrender peacefully and beg for the king's mercy. Royal governors, anxious to get the increasing piracy problem under control, were often more than willing to recommend the king's mercy if it meant a peaceful surrender. Blackbeard, however, had no interest in surrendering. And would begin attacking ships off the coastline of North America. In control of the formidable Queen Anne's Revenge, Blackbeard was quickly known as being a particularly ruthless pirate. After robbing a ship, he would often maroon the crew and burn the ship. Blackbeard was also not above taking hostages and making demands upon local governments. In South Carolina, for instance, Governor Robert Johnson received a message in 1718 that Blackbeard had taken several of the colony's most affluent colonists hostage from Charleston, and that he would kill them unless the governor sent medical supplies. With very few options, Johnson acquiesced and sent the needed supplies. The hostages were released, though they were robbed in the process and were forced to row themselves back to the colony completely naked. After accidentally running Queen Anne's revenge ashore, and increasing pressure from the Crown on the colonies to crack down on pirates, Blackbeard decided that the jig was probably just about up. Not interested in hanging for his crimes, he decided to surrender to the governor of North Carolina, Charles Eden. So, why Eden? Charles Eden was known to be friendly to pirates, and was at the time suspected of profiting from that relationship. It is worth noting that pirated goods were known to be in possession of Eden, and North Carolina had become something of a pirate haven. The very fact that Blackbeard selected Eden as the guy to go surrender to further acts as evidence that Eden was a friend in the situation. In Virginia, their governor, Alexander Sportwood, was not at all pleased when he learned of the surrender. Neither trusting Blackbeard's word nor Eden and his government, he felt that the entire thing was just some kind of elaborate ploy. To his credit, Sportwood looked pretty on point when Blackbeard did in fact decide that piracy was still pretty alluring and went right back to his old ways. In what would prove to be a mistake, Blackbeard returned to pirating off the coast of Virginia, a place that was far less friendly to him than North Carolina. Sportwood by this point was not playing around, and he wanted to bring this entire matter with Blackbeard to a close. Sportwood managed to convince an English man of warship to help his cause, while at the same time retrofitting his own sloops. Sportwood had decided that it was time to move on Blackbeard. The pirate was spotted on December 22, 1718. Blackbeard, knowing that it was too late to surrender at this point, and recognizing that he was trapped, attacked. Blackbeard's initial attack killed 20 Englishmen, However, he was ultimately outgunned in the engagement. What came next was vicious hand-to-hand combat by Blackbeard's men and the British forces. Blackbeard would manage to kill eight more of the British. However, he himself was stabbed more than 20 times by swords and shot another five. The most notorious pirate in the region was dead. Blackbeard's death came in 1718 which is typically considered the tail end of the Golden Age of Pirates. As the 1720s moved in, the British were able to begin to turn the tide and slowly bring a substantial decline in piracy. The British Navy in its own right was increasingly powerful. Penalties for working with pirates became a much bigger deterrent, and the risk simply was becoming too much. This would lead to a general decline in the practice. This is not to say, however, that the conditions that created piracy simply vanished. Though less common, the use of privateers to supplement the Navy continued to be a common practice. The United States relied on the practice through the American Civil War. In Europe, the use of privateers would continue until the 1856 Treaty of Paris, a treaty that the United States declined to sign. Non-European nations still commonly use merchant ships in conflict, so in that regard privateering does still exist, though it is far less common than it was during the 18th century. As has always been the case, there still exists a very fine line between privateering and piracy. As we wrap up today's episode, I want to take a second to just make a note on the sources that I'm using. In writing this podcast, I make use of a variety of different sources. I use everything from extremely broad textbook style sources that cover huge amounts of time to secondary sources focused on very particular events and moments. I use primary texts, I use political writings, journal articles, and more. Every single episode is pulled together through multiple sources as I do my best to ensure that I'm providing you good and accurate accounts of events. If you ever find yourself wondering what sources I draw from, I do keep a running source list on my website that will give you just that information. If a particular topic interests you, go check out what I used to write the episode and dive in deeper. This week, for example, I relied heavily on Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, an absolutely fantastic book by historian Jamie Goodall. If you want to know more about piracy in the era, pick up her book. You won't be disappointed. I will include a link to the website in today's show notes. That way you can pop over to the website and see just what it is I'm using to tell the story. Next time, we are going to dive headlong into Queen Anne's War. The colonies are about to be swept up in a war between the English, the French, and the Spanish. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we examine the beginnings of Queen Anne's war.